Welcome to the Cutting Edge Health Podcast with Jane Rogers, where we discuss science to help prevent cognitive decline. I am a dog lover, and several years ago, I learned of the Dog Aging Project at the University of Washington. Using a drug called rapamycin, these dogs are living longer and healthier. Rapamycin targets the molecular causes of Alzheimer's. If it's helping dogs, could it work in humans? Dr. Matt Caberlin is the director of the Dog Aging Project, and he joins us to share what he's learned. So welcome, Matt, to the podcast. Thanks for your Thank time. You. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. I, I have been a fan of yours for some time. Ever since I heard of the Dog Aging Project, and I had a, a dog that now I know was too big, a Bernese Mountain Dog. You only <laughs> take dogs who are more medium-sized. But at the time, I was so excited about what you were doing in your lab at the University of Washington. Um, can you... You've been on NPR, you've talked about this a lot, but can you, for people who don't know about the Dog Aging Project, can you tell them about it? Sure, so the Dog Aging Project is is really uh, uh, what we call a large-scale longitudinal study of aging in companion dogs, in, in pet dogs. And what that really means is we want to follow pet dogs over, over many years um, to really try to understand what are the most important genetic and environmental factors that influence aging and age-related health outcomes in companion dogs. Um, that's really the primary goal of the Dog Aging Project. Uh, one component of the Dog Aging Project, though, goes beyond just trying to understand aging in dogs mm -hmm. and actually do something about it. And so that's the, the clinical trial, which we call TRIAD, which stands for Test of Rapamycin in Aging Dogs. And the goal of TRIAD is really to determine whether or not the drug rapamycin can slow aging in dogs, increase lifespan, and increase health span. And, and what I mean by increasing health span is to really delay or push back many, maybe all of the declines in function that go along with aging and also the diseases of aging, which is, I think, what most people think about when they think about aging. They think about cancer, heart disease, dementia, kidney disease. Um, and, and our goal is really to, to, to really try to push all of those diseases of aging back as far as possible in companion dogs, in the Dog Aging Project, but then in the, the sort of larger field of uh, aging biology or, or, or geroscience in people as well. And, um, and so we're testing whether rapamycin can have that effect in dogs. And before we, I can't wait to unpack this on what you're finding with dogs. But before we do that, rapamycin was a bacteria found on Easter Island, right? And it affects sort of, the mTOR protein. Yeah, so rapamycin is a is a small molecule produced by bacteria on Easter Island, right? Okay. So, so okay. the way this was actually discovered was there was a uh, some scientists who were looking for novel antibiotics or or natural products, and they were collecting soil samples from around the world. And, and one of the places they collected samples from was Easter Island, which also goes by the name Rapa Nui. That's where rapamycin get, gets its name from. And what they found was that that the bacteria on Easter Island that they had collected produced this this effect, this molecule that could inhibit cell division first in mammalian cells in culture, and then also in, in uh, budding yeast, which are a, a type of fungi. 
Um, and so, so they started studying this because they noticed that, that it had this effect. And, um, and it was originally studied as an antifungal and then as an anti-cancer, then eventually approved by the FDA for human use to prevent organ transplant rejection. So there's actually, it's, it's, it's got an absolutely fascinating kind of backstory to it, the, how this drug was discovered and, and brought off of Easter Island and developed and then ended up in a freezer for several years and then then kind of came out of the freezer and got studied some more. Um, so if people are interested, I, I, it's really a cool story. Someday there will be a really, I think, um, interesting documentary on, on how rapamycin was discovered and, and developed and hopefully how it was found to have uh, the effect of slowing biological aging and increasing mm -hmm. lifespan. Now, what originally got you into this? Why were you all of us, you know, into rapamycin? What yeah, so I've been studying... I'd been studying the biology of aging since I was a graduate student. So I got interested in um, this idea that we could understand at a genetic, biochemical, molecular level what aging was and potentially do something about it. Um, and then as a, as a postdoctoral researcher, so, so a postdoctoral scientist is somebody who's just gotten their PhD, and it's sort of an additional period of training um, that most people go through before they start their independent academic career if they stay in academia. So I was a postdoc and we were doing an, what we call an unbiased genetic screen for genes that affected lifespan. And one of the genes that we found was mTOR. Um, and, and so I didn't know a lot about rapamycin before that. So what we did was we found really by luck and accident and kind of being in the right place at the right time, that if we knocked down mTOR itself, we could extend lifespan. So what did I do? I went to, you know, the, the version of Google that was around at that time, said, what do we know about mTOR? And it turns out there's this drug, rapamycin, that's a specific inhibitor of mTOR. And so that led me to think, well, maybe rapamycin, you know, would have the, the same effect, would increase lifespan. And it turned out it did. And, um, and as sometimes happens in science, it turned out that, that three or four other labs right around the same time um, had, had also uh, converged on mTOR. So there were, there were three or four of us that published papers, you know, between like 2004 and 2006 in different animals showing that if you inhibit mTOR, you could increase lifespan and slow aging. And that really, you know, really is what set the stage for where we are today, where now we know that rapamycin is pretty much the, the gold standard for uh, a longevity drug. And what I mean by that is, is it's the most reproducible and most effective way to increase lifespan and increase health span across many different laboratory animals. Um, we still don't know for sure that it will have the same effect in people or in companion dogs, but that's kind of what, that's, that's what the field is figuring out right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, mTOR, it's exciting because it's, it's like the powerhouse of the cell. It's the, the, the general contractor of a cell, yeah. right? So yeah, you got to be careful with rejuvenate <laughs> mTOR. You've you've got that's that's a positive for aging. Sort of, yeah. You have to be power. You have to be care, careful with calling it the, the powerhouse of the cell. That's the mitochondria. We don't want to okay. we don't want to usurp the mitochondria. Um, uh, I'm kind of <laughs> joking, like but that. that's that that's kind of the colloquial <laughs> way that people refer to, to mitochondria, which are important in mm -hmm. aging, by the way. Um, so I, I, the way you can think about mTOR, it's a really um, important uh, regulator of cell growth and, and, and organismal development. And so okay. one of the ways I think about mTOR is, is and, and, it's, and it's conserved in, in every, what we call eukaryote. So basically every animal on the face of the earth uh, every organism that's not a bacteria has mTOR. So it's very highly conserved throughout evolution. 
And the way I think about mTOR is, if you think about kind of fundamental decisions that every organism or animal has ever had to make, um, mm -hmm. one of those fundamental decisions is, is, is it a good time to reproduce? And, and an important factor in making that decision is whether there's food around, right? It's not a good mm -hmm. idea to have a bunch of babies, no matter what kind of organism you are, if there's no food around. And, and mTOR is really kind of the central decision maker that helps the cell or the organism kind of evaluate the environment, especially the nutrient levels in the environment, and determine whether or not it's a good time to, to grow and reproduce. If there's lots of nutrients around, mTOR gets turned on, it gets activated, and that sends a signal that it's a good time to develop quickly, have lots of babies, pass your genes on to the next generation. So mTOR really makes a lot of sense if you think about it from the perspective of natural selection and evolution, because you have to make, th that decision has to be made well, or your genes aren't gonna get passed on to the next generation. You're not gonna be evolutionarily successful. So why is this important for aging? Well, it, it turns out that one of the things that happens in, in the context of biological aging is post-reproductively, those same signals grow and reproduce, once you've already reproduced, mm -hmm. continuing to have those signals on at a high level leads to many, maybe all of the functional declines and diseases that go along with aging. And so there's this idea that to some extent, aging is the continued activation of mTOR at a suboptimal level post-reproductively that drives all of these different diseases and declines in function. And so, consistent with that, if we inhibit mTOR in adults, again, at least in laboratory animals, we can delay those diseases of aging, increase lifespan, and actually, in some cases, actually restore function that's already been lost, which is pretty exciting from a therapeutic perspective. It's not only about slowing down the decline. In some cases, we might actually be able to reverse some of the decline. So the community that listens to this podcast, we're concerned about preventing Alzheimer's. And I know with the yeah. Dog Aging Project, you've done a lot of work with dogs. Can we really jump that bridge and say, okay, this is something that's got potential for humans because we haven't had a, a, a good clinical trial on this yet for humans. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, that's absolutely true. Um, so I, I think there's reason to be optimistic um, that, okay. that rapamycin can be a very powerful preventative for not just Alzheimer's disease, but other types of dementia as well. We know a lot about the, the, the biological mechanisms that, that um, at least precede dementia and Alzheimer's mm -hmm. disease. And, and we know that rapamycin can have an impact on those mechanisms. And we could talk more about that if, if you'd like to in a few minutes. Um, the other thing we know is that in mice, you know, there's a little bit of a, there's a lot of debate about whether mice can be used as a good model for Alzheimer's disease. Um, because mice during normal aging don't get true Alzheimer's disease, but they do show cognitive decline with age during normal aging. And the cool thing about rapamycin is that in the mouse models, it's been shown in basically all of the major mouse models of Alzheimer's disease to be beneficial. It's also been shown to delay or prevent normal age-related cognitive decline in mice. So, and this is why I think it's, it's, you know, it's a better bet than, than things that just affect the Alzheimer's disease models in mice. Because those Alzheimer's disease models are kind of missing the normal aging component, that the, the changes that go along with normal aging. And, you know, Alzheimer's disease, if you think of all of the different diseases of aging, Alzheimer's disease, you know, is one of the, the, the strongest in terms of, of risk as a function of age. Your risk of getting Alzheimer's disease, you know, goes up 
dramatically, exponentially as you get older. So there's clearly a underlying normal aging component that creates a permissive state for dementia and for Alzheimer's disease. So I think there's lots of reason to believe that, that rapamycin um, can be can be beneficial as a preventative for Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. I'm a little bit less sure whether rapamycin will be beneficial once a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease has been made. Um, that's a that's a much heavier lift, as as you can imagine, mm -hmm. to 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 have a benefit. You know, once once the pathology's gotten to the point where it's been diagnosed. I made the decision in December to try rapamycin, you know, in large part because of the research you've been doing. And I have seen good benefits personally. Um, I only take it once a week. I take six milligrams once a week. And that's part of this theory, isn't it? That you want to have a peak in the levels of your body and then let it drop down into a trough. And you don't want to take it every day, right? So I think it depends. So, so you're right. That is that is the um, current thinking for mm -hmm. uh, age preventative uh, uh, effects of rapamycin, mm -hmm. right? That 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 once weekly, you know, is a good strategy as opposed to daily. Partly this is um, partly this is driven by, like you said, the idea that you want to get very high levels of rapamycin. Uh, early on, which will be mm -hmm. strong. Remember, rapamycin is an inhibitor of mTOR. And actually, for the aficionados out there, it's an inhibitor of mTOR complex one or mTORC one. Um, and so you want to get high inhib inhibition of mTORC one right after you take it. But then, but then you don't take the next do next dose until the rapamycin has been cleared from the blood, which allows mTORC one activity to come back up to normal level. Right. And this gets back to what I was saying earlier about the idea that aging may be partly driven by um, too much expression of mTORC1 chronically. And so what you're doing by once weekly rapamycin dosing is you're inhibiting it transit transiently. There are all sorts of effects associated with inhibiting mTORC complex one, some of which are many of which are beneficial, but some of which in the long run probably aren't beneficial. But by allowing mTORC1 to come back up, you can kind of allow the system to reset itself um, before you do that next dose. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that this is driven by is, is actual clinical data in people where we know that um, in organ transplant patients who would take maybe a few migs of rapamycin, but that would be every day, that in that daily dosing of rapamycin, you actually get some off-target effects on mTOR complex two. And, and by doing the once weekly dosing, you kind of avoid some of those off-target effects. And there's a, there's a model that those, that those off-target effects are what lead to the side effects that are seen in organ transplant patients. And I think the data, you know, again, it's early. Um, there are, you know, probably a few thousand people around the world right now, like you, maybe more, but, but at least a few thousand who are doing this sort of once weekly rapamycin dosing around, around six MIGs. Um, and we're, so we're starting to get data from those people. And, and it seems to be consistent with the idea that that sort of a protocol, the side effects are minimal. Very, very few people have any real side effects at that dose. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people report anecdotal benefits, like it sounds like you, you feel like you've experienced. Mm -hmm. So, so far, so good, I would say. Um, we're actually, one of the projects I'm involved in is actually trying to collect um, data by survey from people who've been taking rapamycin to really, you know, try to get more information on on both what are the real side effects that might be being experienced and what are some of the, you know, uh, effects that people uh, feel like they are experiencing from from 
uh, this kind of a dosing with rapamycin. So I think we're going to learn a lot in the next couple of years. I guess I jumped on this because my family has a history of Alzheimer's. My dad passed yeah. with it. My mom's in memory care now. And I started showing signs of cognitive decline myself at the same age as my dad in my mid-50s. And it scared me. And I yeah. went out trying to find research like yours to say, what can we do? And it's it's cutting edge. And it's maybe a little out there <laughs> to be taking rapamycin <laughs> now before yeah. all the clinical trial results come in, before you've done your study and experienced you know, what's happening with other people. Yeah. But I think it's worth it based on what you're seeing with dogs. Well, and with people. So there are actually mm -hmm. um, two relatively large clinical trials that were done by a company called RestorBio with a, uh, a derivative of rapamycin. These are called rapalogs, but they work exactly like rapamycin. So they were testing a derivative of rapamycin in healthy older people for effects on immune function. And what they found in both clinical trials was that the people who got the mTOR inhibitor actually showed a better response to a flu vaccine, which it, which is based on exactly the same data in mice. So at least for immune aging, it really looks like rapamycin probably has similar benefits in people as what's been seen in mice. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a bunch of different lines of evidence, I think, that are all, again, consistent with the idea that at least some of these effects of rapamycin on aging that have been seen in all the laboratory animals will also be seen in companion dogs and in people. Mm -hmm. um, a little bit, the unknowns at this point, in my view at least, are you know what are the right doses to, to get those effects? Um, and what, will it be as broad in terms of the effects on aging as what's been seen in mice? Or will it be you know more specific to certain age-related declines or diseases in, in people and dogs? And, I, and again, I think we'll learn a lot more about that in the next few years. I also want to comment on you know something you said, which I, I think a lot of people um, especially people who maybe haven't heard much about rapamycin will have exactly the opinion you have that it's kind of edgy, you know, it's a little bit risky to, <laughs> to be taking rapamycin. And it is, I mean, I think we have to recognize there are, you know, it is an unknown. It hasn't gone through double blind placebo controlled trials for this purpose. So we don't really know what the um, efficacy is, you know, how, how well is it going to work? In terms of the side effects, again, everything has a risk, but I think, you know, people don't really weigh risk reward in a rational way when we think about things like rapamycin. And what I mean by that is we're sort of been trained by, you know, the culture and the way our government regulates medications to be very concerned about side effects. I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's, it's the truth, right? We are sort of trained to really worry about if it's a prescription medication, what are the side effects? And yet we pay absolutely no attention to the risks associated with supplements, which haven't been tested in many cases, haven't gone through FDA, any FDA process. We pay no attention to the risks of dietary interventions, right? I always try to make this point, like, or, or, you know, if you think about the effects of something like a ketogenic diet, and actually I like ketogenic diets. I'm not, I'm not picking on ketogenic diets, but if you think about the effects, the biological consequences of a dramatic change in what you're eating are far more widespread and far more profound than the biological consequences of something like rapamycin. And the risk of side effects is much higher. Probably not side effects that are going to kill you, although, you know, it could certainly if you took nutritional changes to the extreme. So I'm just trying to make the point that I think many people and even the way we think about and regulate medications could benefit from a little bit more rational thinking about, you know, what are the real risks associated with the, the, the different interventions that we might employ 
to improve our health. And then, you know, don't even get started with the, the stuff that people do that aren't good for ourselves, like alcohol yeah. consumption or too much alcohol consumption or smoking. Right. So, you know, we don't as a society, we really don't take a very rational um uh, approach to, to, to risk reward analysis. So, and all of this is just to say, in my personal view, the risk associated with the kind of rapamycin regimen that, that, that you're practicing is really pretty low, lower than, a, than a, a substantial dietary change, way lower than smoking or overconsumption of alcohol. Thank you. That makes me feel better. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> it. So if someone is listening and saying, whoa, I've got the Alzheimer's gene. Um, I have this in my family. Rapamycin is something I might want to consider. It's A, hard to get, and B, it's expensive. It's it's a real investment. What do you recommend? So number one, I'm not an MD. I don't recommend anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, That's right. Um, so <laughs> other than other than, I mean, I do think I do I, I do recommend that that people who are interested potentially in learning more about rapamycin or taking rapamycin, if at all possible, find a medical doctor who will prescribe it for you. I know there are people who get rapamycin from offshore pharmacies without any medical supervision. My advice would be to do it under medical supervision. And there are a growing number of MDs who are, are um, comfortable with evaluating people and determining whether something like rapamycin is, is the right choice for those people, including Alan Green, who I know you know. Mm -hmm. um, there is a website, Rapamycin News. You can Google that, and they have a list of, of MDs who um, who are prescribing rapamycin. So, so it's not as difficult as it used to be to find a doctor who is knowledgeable about rapamycin and, and who is willing to, to prescribe it. Um, I, I don't really, you know, I mean, I think unfortunately it is, it is expensive and it's more expensive in the United States than in other parts of the world. You know, that's a reflection of a lot of stuff that's above my pay grade, honestly. Um, I mean, unfortunately, <laughs> the the way that we, you know, the way that we handle healthcare in this country is a mess, and and prescription drug prices reflect some of that. So, I, you know, there are all sorts of um, lower priced uh, options that are out there once you've got a prescription, and so shop around. I would say, um, and I think as long as as long as the rapamycin that you're getting is coming from, you know, a, 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 an international or multinational pharmaceutical company who's producing it. It's it's probably going to be just fine in terms of quality. I know there's a lot of concerns about quality of of drugs from different parts of the world. It's my impression that that most of the drugs are are made in the same places and then they're just packaged differently. So um, I, I I'm not personally so concerned about that. Um, one thing I will say. Don't buy the powder and try to take it. I know people who've done that and it's not a good idea. Get a, like a real pharmaceutical formulation of, of rapamycin. Rapamune is the gold standard, but anything that says serolimus on it um, and it comes in a, a triangular tablet is gonna, is gonna be you know, uh, made to, to, to um, uh, good manufacturing practice. You know, we could go a lot of different directions from here. I want to ask you so many questions. Sure. We haven't really dug deeply, though, into what you are seeing in dogs and hopefully people too, but dogs especially. What are the areas that rapamycin is helping? And I made a list that I have seen, and yeah. one of them was, it was exciting. What happens with a dog who might have some heart problems? And you're seeing that rapamycin really helps a dog with heart problems, um, to improve. 
Yeah. So the one thing I would say is, um, yes, we have seen that. And I'll tell you about that data in a minute. But I think it's important to make a disclaimer that the studies we've done so far, we've done two clinical trials. They've both been very small. So the, the clinical trial to really answer the question, how effective is rapamycin at extending lifespan and improving health is happening now. So I, I kind of view the data that we've gotten so far as in some ways, preliminary data. So you might think of it like a phase two clinical trial for, for human drug development. So it's intriguing, suggestive, not definitive. Um, so in terms of heart function, what we what we saw, uh, so, so first of all, just to take a step back, what we knew from the mouse studies, uh, multiple labs have now seen this. If you, take a, if you take a mouse and you just allow it to age normally and you give it an echocardiogram, which is like an ultrasound for the heart, what you will see are very characteristic changes in the function of the heart that are part of the normal aging process. So declines in function in different chambers of the heart that can be seen by ultrasound. So in our first um, trial, what we, we, we gave the dogs echocardiograms before and after rapamycin treatment. And what we saw was if you looked across all the dogs that got rapamycin and you compared them to the placebo dogs. So these all of our studies are double blind placebo controlled uh, randomized clinical trials. The dogs on average who had gotten rapamycin had an improvement in heart function by these echo uh, echocardiographic parameters mm -hmm. compared to the dogs that didn't get rapamycin. Um, the interesting thing there is that was that on average. If you look at the individual dogs, what it really looked like was the dogs that came in with lower heart function were the ones that got the benefit. So the dogs whose hearts were, were still functioning fine, showed no change with rapamycin treatment. The dogs who had low function were the ones who got the benefit. Um, so, you know, that's suggestive that, that rapamycin was, was having similar effects in dogs as to what had been previously seen in mice. Um, and, and we're looking at heart function in the, the ongoing clinical trial. The other thing that I think I feel pretty confident was probably a real effect because we saw this in both both of the trials that we've done so far, was that the owners whose dogs got rapamycin, without us prompting them really, um, said that their dogs were more active, whereas compared to the owners whose dogs had gotten placebo. And again, the owners didn't know whether their dog was getting rapamycin or placebo until the study was done. So I, I think it, I think it's probably a real effect of rapamycin. And I, what that actually means, I don't think we know yet. It might mean that the dogs had less arthritis. It might mean that they were in less pain. It could be something could have been an effect on, you know, something in the brain. We don't really know the mechanism, but I think that was a real effect um, that, that the dogs who got rapamycin showed, you know, an increase in activity uh, over the course of the study that the owners picked up on. Yeah, that's encouraging. One of the things that I thought was encouraging, especially with the gut-brain connection, was how you're finding that rapamycin changes can change the microbiome of a dog's in a dog's gut. So we haven't done it in dogs yet. I think you're thinking of the mouse study that we did out of out of the my mouse lab. study. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that was really interesting. So what we what we found mm -hmm. there was that um, uh, twelve weeks of rapamycin treatment in in mice. Um, uh, well, eight, eight to 12 weeks, we've done a couple of different experiments, was enough to remodel the gut microbiome. Interestingly, that also remodels the oral microbiome. So people, a lot of people don't realize this because most of the time when you hear about microbiome, you think about the gut, the microbes in the gut. But we have right. a different microbiome in our mouth and we have a different microbiome on our skin. And there are other communities of microbes. So we haven't looked at skin yet. I bet rapamycin would affect the microbiome on the skin as well. So in the gut and even in a more pronounced way in the mouth, the oral microbiome, 
we actually saw that that there's a change that goes along with aging in the composition of the microbiome. And at least in the mouth, rapamycin actually reverts the composition of the microbiome back to something more like a young microbiome. The gut microbiome was more complicated, so I can't make a definitive statement about a reversion back to a youthful microbiome. But in the mouth, that's really what it looked like. And at the same time, this is all in mice, at the same time, it reversed clinical signs of periodontal disease in the mice. So we it regrew bone around the teeth and it reduced the inflammation in the gums. So we're really intrigued and excited about the idea that um, that that uh, oral aging of the oral cavity might be a, a, a particularly uh, good endpoint to look at in people for effects of rapamycin because it's pretty non-invasive, you know, and dentists are very good at measuring in inflammation of the gums, that's gingivitis, and bone around the teeth by x-ray or by pocket depth, that's periodontitis. Um, so we can actually do a clinical trial and see whether rapamycin is having an effect. So my colleague here at the University of Washington, his name is John Ahn, um, actually got a grant to do this clinical trial. So I'm really, really excited to see how that comes out. He's a uh, he's in the dental school here. He's a dental PhD. So he has a PhD. He was one of my graduate students. He got it in my lab. And he has a DDS. So he's a dentist. So he's really well positioned to actually answer this question. How about stem cells? Have you seen any kind of effect on stem cells in, in mice or dogs? Yeah. Um, again, we haven't looked at really in dogs. So, so one thing that we always have to keep in mind in our studies of dogs, they're all in companion dogs. So these are people's pets. So the kinds of things that we look at um, need to be relatively non-invasive and need to be something that can be queried in a typical veterinary office, right? Or a veterinary teaching hospital. So some of the more specialized stuff, um, it's, it's just more, much more difficult to do in companion dogs. In mice, both in my lab and, and several other labs have seen that if you treat old mice, so first of all, again, you always have to think about this in the context of normal aging. If you look at an, uh, an old mouse compared to a young mouse, in most, maybe all, but certainly most tissues, you will see a decline in stem cell function with normal aging. Um, in multiple tissues now, people have seen that if you treat mice with rapamycin for, for you know between six to 12 weeks, you um, see improvements in stem cell function in many different tissues. The one that excites me the most are uh, uh, what are called hematopoietic stem cells. So these are kind of the stem cells that seed the immune system. And we know that immune dysfunction is a real problem during aging in, in people. I mean, look, just look at the, look, look at where we've been for the last two years, right? Yeah. Um, so if we had a way to rejuvenate immune function in older people, that's really, really important. That's big. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's important not only for the obvious reason, like COVID-19 or influenza, but one of the most potent anti-cancer mechanisms we have is our immune system. And that's probably one of the big drivers of why we see a big spike in many cancers as people get older. It's because their immune system isn't doing as good of a job at clearing out those cancers early. So if we can boost the immune system, we can have an indirect effect on age-related cancers. And that's what's, we, that's what's seen in mice with rapamycin. So yeah, so it's pretty exciting. And we know something about the mechanisms for how um, rapamycin is probably affecting stem cell function in, in many different tissues. Um, and so it, it, it makes biological sense that it would have that effect. So look to the future. This is, you're young. This is an exciting time <laughs> for research in your area. You are young. Yeah. And where do you think it's going to go? 
What do you think you're going to see? Yeah. So, so I, I, I um, expect that, that, that we will see the first sort of true clinical applications of what I call geroscience. So, so stuff that's been learned about the basic biology of aging in the laboratory, making its way into the clinic. And, and you know, that'll be the veterinary clinic and the human clinic. And that, that for me is really exciting because that's been, you know, something the field has been working towards for, for decades, right? We're finally at the point now where we have interventions like rapamycin that are being tested. And, and you know, some of them, I think, will show efficacy in clinical trials. And then you'll really see uptake by the clinical community. The other thing that's super exciting is that there is a growing recognition among many different stakeholders, including funders and philanthropists, that the science has gotten to the point where big investments are needed. And so we're starting to see, you know, influxes of resources into the field that will drive the research and drive the clinical development. And so I think things will start to accelerate. Um, so in terms of rapamycin, you know, again, it's speculative, um, you know, how these clinical trials are going to come out. I would be very surprised if we don't see evidence for at least some age-related endpoints end that, that rapamycin is beneficial in both dogs and people. Again, I don't know if it's going to broadly affect aging. I don't know if it's going to dramatically increase lifespan, but I think we will see endpoints where rapamycin is, is quite effective. And in particular, disorders that are driven by chronic age-related inflammation. And, and, you know, in the context of the dementia and Alzheimer's disease, there's a growing recognition that inflammation of the brain is a contributing factor to dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And I think rapamycin will be quite effective at, at knocking that down. So I think we will see that over the next couple of years um, and we'll start to get a better feel for what the right kind of dosing strategies are. So again, you know, this goes back to your comment that, you know, it's a little bit early, it's a little bit edgy. That's true. We don't, you know, we don't know yet. Is the once weekly six migs once a week, is that the is that the right dose? Is that, you know, is that the optimal dose? Certainly it's going to be personalized at some point, different people, optimal dosing in different people is going to be different. Um, and I think we'll learn more about that uh, over the, over the next few years. Um, mm -hmm. But my expectation is we'll see benefits from rapamycin. And I think, you know, I, I, I think that it will become a household word in the next five years, if I'm right, right. If we really do wow. start to see these benefits. Um, but I also would say rapamycin's, you know, it's it's the first best shot on goal right now. There's going to be better things coming down the pipeline. So I'm not, I don't want to make people think rapamycin is a miracle drug. It's not um, in the sense it's not going to, it's not a fountain of youth. Um, and I think better things will come along as the research continues to progress. I have to ask you about your own personal regimen to slow aging. What are you doing? So I, uh, I, I, I do the stuff, I try to do the stuff that we all know we should do. I'm not perfect by any sense of the imagination. Um, I try to eat a relatively healthy diet. Honestly, I think for, uh, you know, for most people, you can get 75, 80% of the way there if you can eat a relatively healthy diet, exercise regularly, sleep well, um, and, you know, and have, and this is a harder thing. Sleeping well is hard. That's a hard thing. Um, and, and on top of that, which is even harder, you know, be emotionally and mentally balanced, right? But I think if you can do that, you're most of the way there. And then things like rapamycin will get will get you that other 20%.
with the exception being if you are have a genetic predisposition to a an age-related disease like an ApoE4 allele that will predispose you to, to Alzheimer's disease and dementia. You can do a lot, even if you have that genetic predisposition though, by diet and exercise and lifestyle and sleep, right? Um, so that's what I try to do. I try to focus on those, you know, some people call them pillars, right? Most of my attention is there. I try to eat a relatively healthy diet. It's been a journey, but I have learned that for me, a uh, relatively low carbohydrate diet works really well in terms of how I feel, how much energy I have, um, how much mental clarity I have. That's the other thing. One size does not fit everybody. And I think we should be honest about that. But for me, that works pretty well. So I try to eat a healthy diet. I exercise regularly. I Again, this works really well for me, and I think it's probably true for most people. I would say resistance exercise, weightlifting is more important than, than cardiovascular exercise, or it's at least equally important in the context of aging. Loss of muscle mass drives um, many, many problems in the elderly. And the best way to, to stop that from happening is to do resistance training. Um, and I try to get lots of sleep. Um, I, and I, I'm one of these people I'm lucky so far. I, my sleep quality hasn't declined, uh, with age and, and I'm, Great. and I'm just sort of naturally an optimist. So again, I feel like I'm pretty balanced in terms of the way that I, um, deal with stress. I don't get stressed out. Um, but whatever you can do to help yourself there, those are the things I focus on. And then I take rapamycin, um, and I do it, I do it in, in a cyclic manner. So I do usually 10 weeks of rapamycin. Um, and then I'll stop for a few months and then I'll do another 10 weeks. Again, it's a guesswork, right? And, and that, that seems to work for me. And I feel pretty good with that regimen. But the other thing that I try to do is I try to, um, I try to evaluate data as it comes in. And I open to the idea that, you know, what I'm doing now may not be optimal. And as I learn more, I'm totally willing to change the, the things that I'm doing. And so I think that's another, you know, I see people, especially in the health and wellness space who get married to a particular idea. And even when data comes along that, that clearly shows that idea should be reevaluated, they have a really hard time doing that. I think you want to be open to new information as it comes along, because, you know, science is a, is a, is, is a, is a progression, right? And and a lot of stuff that we thought 20 years ago about nutrition, we now know was incomplete at best and outright wrong in some cases. And so you got to be willing to change what you're doing um, if the if the data says that's that you know that that's what need what needs to happen. Matt, this has been fabulous. Thank you for your time. Thank you sure. for sharing yeah. all of this. Happy to. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to checking in with you in, in a couple of years to see where you've gone and what you've <laughs> yeah. learned. <laughs> Hopefully we've got exciting stuff to report. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. You've been listening to the Cutting Edge Health Podcast, created and hosted by Jane Rogers. The website is cuttingedgehealth.com. We hope you enjoyed the show and would very much appreciate your writing a review. They help a lot and we read each one. Any information shared on this podcast is for educational purposes only. Guest opinions are their own. This podcast is not responsible for the veracity of their statements. The comments expressed are not medical advice. Do not use any of this information without first talking to your doctor. This podcast and Jane Rogers disclaim responsibility for any adverse effects from the use of any information presented. Thank you for listening and have a beautiful day.